American Majority. Days of Revolution is a podcast series brought to you by AmericanMajority.org. This is Ned Ryan, and welcome to Episode 4, The Legacy of the Colonial Legislatures and Self-Government. We could go on for hours trying to pinpoint the beginning of the American Revolution, sifting through history looking for one unique point that was the beginning. But what constitutes a beginning? Was it a single event, a trend, an idea, a person? Greater minds have spilled massive quantities of ink trying to find a definite point for the origins of the revolution, so I'm not going to go there. Instead, the more useful pursuit is tracing the themes of the revolution back through history in order to discover their significance. One of the themes of the revolution was the idea of independent self-government, a theme inextricably linked to our political tradition even today. But the idea of self-government didn't just appear out of thin air in the early 1770s. The idea of self-government had been around in the American colonies for well over a century before the revolution, because that's what the colonies were actually doing. 3,000 miles away from England, they were governing themselves. The colonists' desire to revolt in 1776 is much easier to understand if we keep in mind their almost total independence long before the parliamentary acts following the French and Indian War. In fact, as historian Clinton Rossiter writes, at the time of the revolution, British North America was made up of 13 separate political communities, subject immediately or ultimately to the authority of the crown, but enjoying in fact large powers of self-government. The colony's independence had been described as salutary self-neglect. It was unofficial, but it was a reality. Now, the 13 colonies had vastly diverse histories, as you've hopefully gleaned from the previous podcast, and it is impossible to cover each one's self-government individually in a single podcast. Instead, I want to look at a few influential colonies and some themes that generally applied to all 13 of them. Hopefully, this will help construct a compelling argument for why knowing the tradition of self-government and the colonial legislatures is essential to understanding the colonial experience and the American Revolution. Colonial government began in 1619 with the Virginia House of Burgesses, the, the first legislative body in the New World. The Jamestown Colony, founded in 1607, quickly outgrew its initial governmental structure controlled by colonial officials appointed by the London Company, such as John Smith and Christopher Newport. The London Company realized after several years that it needed to end the monopoly on land ownership, and instead of the colonists being sharecroppers, the land must be available for private ownership because it would lead to more private investment into the land. As more and more colonists bought land and moved beyond the borders of Jamestown, and the colony of course grew into a series of settlements, a system was needed that would encompass a larger area and maintain authority over it. So the Virginia Company, underneath the London Company, encouraged the colonial governor at the time, Sir George Yardley, to facilitate elections for representatives of the boroughs cropping up alongside the James River. Thus the name, the House of Burgesses, which means free men or representative of a borough. In 1619, Yardley had elections with land-owning males over the age of 17 allowed to vote and called for representatives from those 11 boroughs adjacent to the James River. On July 30, 1619, the original 22 members of the House of Burgesses met for the first time in Jamestown, becoming the first locally elected legislative body in the American colonies. 
1699, the House of Burgesses was moved to Middle Plantation, which was later called Williamsburg. Soon after, in 1631, the Puritans of the Massachusetts Bay Colony agreed on a brief set of rules for elections in their own town hall-style colonial government. These rules stated that any free man would be eligible to vote for governor and that these free men who voted must be members of a church. Laws were made on a yearly basis at a meeting of a town hall where all free men were allowed to speak and vote. Eight years later, in 1639, the fundamental orders of Connecticut were laid out by the Connecticut Colony Council, describing the structure of the local and colonial governments of the first Connecticut settlements. The fundamental orders provided for the suffrage of free men, the office of a governor, the convening of legislative assemblies, and the authority to levy taxes. Interestingly, this document was considered by some to be the first written constitution in what is called the Western tradition and a precursor to the American Constitution. And this has earned Connecticut its nickname as the Constitution State. These three colonies were among the earliest to develop working systems of self-government in what became a period of prolific establishment and growth for the British North American colonies. They also spanned the spectrum of independence enjoyed by the various settlements. On one end, Virginia and Massachusetts were royal colonies, financed by and subject to the King of England, and so they enjoyed only limited independent prerogative. On the other hand, Connecticut was a corporate colony. In fact, Connecticut even refused to be ruled by a royally appointed governor and instead held popular gubernatorial elections every two years. Eleven of the thirteen colonies were established by 1691, with Georgia and South Carolina being the late arrivals in the mid-18th century. With the establishment of each colony necessarily came new governments, and across this vast array of colonial governments, we can trace some important trends. First, we can say that, in general, executive power dominated the colonies as a legacy of the British monarchy. Royally appointed governors were placed in charge of every colony, with the exception, of course, being Connecticut, and given extensive powers over their jurisdictions. The typical royal governor was given authority to command the armed forces to pardon, veto legislation without an override, and appoint colonial officials. The royal governor generally existed at odds with the colonists because he was seen as an agent of the crown, removed from the common folk, and not accountable to them in any way. In fact, the New York Colonial Assembly even passed an official resolution saying that the governors were generally entire strangers to the people they were sent to govern. Their interest is entirely distinct. They seldom regard the welfare of the people otherwise than as they can make it subservient to their own particular interest. Now, there were exceptions to this trend, of course. For example, Robert Dinwiddie, the governor of Virginia in the years preceding the French and Indian War, had a very favorable reputation among the people of Virginia and was an acquaintance of George Washington's. Thomas Ponal, who would become the governor of Massachusetts after the French and Indian War, was very understanding of the colonists' desire to govern themselves and could almost be called a revolutionary sympathizer. Even Thomas Hutchinson in Massachusetts, who was a prominent loyalist, was a good friend of Benjamin Franklin's and was generally popular among the people of Massachusetts while he was governor of the colony. But as you will see in later episodes, when push came to shove, Dinwiddie and Hutchinson were adamantly opposed to the complete independence of the colonies and would side with the crown during the Revolutionary War. 
However, such governors were the exception rather than the rule. The most omnipresent disconnect between the governors and the governed necessitated some form of representation, and this is where the colonial assemblies came into play. Every colony had a legislative body whose job it was to represent the interests of the people. These legislatures were popularly elected, usually by the free white men who owned property. The assemblies acted as the intermediary between the people and the government, and this caused an ongoing struggle between the royal governors and the popular assemblies. The governors generally represented the interests of the king, and the assemblies were the colonists' instrument of defiance when they disagreed with the will of the crown. The most powerful tool at the disposal of the assemblies was the power of the purse, which gave them the authority to levy taxes and control finances. If there was enough of an outcry against an action of the governor, the assemblies had the authority to refuse to finance it. In this way, the colonists could keep their executives in check, and this made the colonial assemblies, according to Rossiter, far more advanced toward the idea of a popular legislature than was the House of Commons. Another component of a typical colonial government was the council, which was a small body of officials who usually accomplished multiple tasks. The council would act as the upper house of the legislature, the highest court of appeals, the governor's cabinet, or any combination of those roles. Usually made up of 12 or so prominent well-to-do gentlemen, the councils were sometimes elected and sometimes appointed but they were generally further removed from the common colonists than the colonial assembly. Now, I only mention the courts briefly because the colonial courts had little in common with each other. They all practiced some variant of English common law, and the colonies of the North tended to rely on a good deal of biblical principles in the application of their laws. However, the court systems of each of the colonies were quite different in formation, power, and principle. Nonetheless, we know that there were systems of law enforcement and justice at work in the colonies, just each was based on unique principles. Now, this is a basic summary of government at the colonial level. There are far more details that should be covered in such a broad study, but for the sake of time, I want to move on to a different aspect of colonial politics, the local governments. I will say unequivocally that local governments in the colonies were the most interesting because of their diversity and autonomy. And more importantly, I feel that we should understand the nature of local government because of what it can teach us about American government today. The core of the colonial way of life was the local community. By the same logic, the most spirited political activity happened at the local level. Local governments were the beating heart of the colonial civil society. And as such, the colonists were the most invested in the affairs of their towns, counties, cities, or parishes. The first important point I want to make about local governments is the higher rate of participation. It may strike you as odd to know that voter apathy is nothing new. We complain about low voter turnout in our elections today, but in the colonial period, it was just as much an issue. It was considered normal for only one in four eligible voters to participate in an election at the colonial level. However, in local elections, the rate of participation was somewhat higher. Voter apathy was still an issue, as many men simply did not have the time to stay informed or to participate in politics in any meaningful way. However, of those that did have the time and the desire to be involved, more people were invested at the local level than at the colonial level. Second, I want to highlight the diversity of local governments and their uniqueness to their location and culture. 
The governments of towns, cities, and counties tended to take on the values and traditions of the people that lived in them. So in the North, where churches were powerful forces for social cohesion, and equality of all men was a more generally held idea, towns tended to be run by democratically elected councils of men, or in a town hall style, where all of the town's men would meet to make decisions by voting. In the South, however, local government was generally more aristocratic. In some towns, there would be no elections for the local government, and the rich landowners would make the local laws and policy without consulting the public, and the will of the common people would seldom be represented. Nonetheless, across all the towns and cities of the colonies, the various communities provide us with prime examples of independent self-government. Now, the last point I want to make about local government is, I think, the most important. Clinton Rossiter makes an astounding observation that would be wise to take into consideration. He writes that in their self-governance, local administrations were even more independent of the colony than the colony was of the crown. Self-government was doubly the rule in colonial America. Now, the first part of this podcast was dedicated to talking about how the colonial governments were seldom bothered by the king and enjoyed a great deal of independence. Keeping that in mind, how significant is it that the local governments had even more independence from the colonial governments? The founding fathers celebrated localized self-government because of the degree to which personal connections played a role. Agents of local governments would be kept in check if they had to see the people affected by their policies on a daily basis. In a local system, more people have a direct stake in the government's affairs so they are more likely to be involved in the community and public life, benefiting the civil society. I could go on and on about the advantages of localized government, but the point I'm trying to get across is that power was as decentralized during the colonial period as it has ever been in North America. And the period from 1607 to roughly the French and Indian War was a time of thriving civil society and local governments unimpeded by the involvement of the British crown. Now, considering this localized, decentralized system of independent towns and cities, imagine the impact of the French and Indian War and its aftermath, and what it would have on the colonist's way of life. For a century or more, the colonists had enjoyed virtually uninhibited self-government. Suddenly, in the middle of the 18th century with the French and Indian War, the involvement of Parliament and the King in colonial affairs drastically increased, and the colonist's way of life was noticeably disrupted. The reason I devoted a podcast to the colonial legislatures and local self-government in the colonies is because if you become familiar with the politics in the colonies in the 17th and 18th centuries, you can better understand why the infringement of the crown on the colony's self-government caused Americans to call for independence in name as well as in practice. Join me next time as I discuss the Great Awakening and how it not only changed the religious landscape of America, but the customs and politics as well with its themes of individualism and equality laying the groundwork for American democracy. Days of Revolution is a podcast series brought to you by AmericanMajority.org and is written by Ned Ryan and Eric Josephson and recorded by Ned Ryan. If you enjoy this podcast on American history, be sure to check out the History of the Constitutional Convention by Ned Ryan at AmericanMajority.org or on iTunes.